seeing amazing uses of technology, even in the poorest countries, now that most of the people have access to a cell phone. So we see that amazing leapfrog happening, and the farmers in poor countries like Burkina Faso able to increase their livelihoods because of their access to information through uh, technology and mobile phones. The youth, especially the educated urban youth in all countries in the world, with no exception, they got used to fast service, fast response, access to information. And so when they're dealing with kind of backward, paper-based, very slow bureaucracy, these youth get very irritated. And as we all know, you know, this can create unrest, discontent, and, and this is something governments want to avoid. So having the youth on your side and helping modernize governments from within is a, is a key factor of success as well. Hi, I'm Paul Miller, and this is Digital Workplace Impact, where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices, and people impacting the new digital worlds where we work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking, and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. I'm delighted to be joined today by Samia Mellum. Samia is the Lead Policy Specialist, Transport and ICT for the World Bank. She's been in the World Bank since 2007, but before that, she spent 10 years working for the International Finance Corporation, which is a part of the World Bank. Samia is uh, an international development practitioner with a lot of expertise around managing large-scale digital development projects in developing countries. And uh, Sammy and I got to know each other when we had a digital nations group meeting at the World Bank in DC a few months ago. And I was just fascinated by the stories that Samia was telling me about the kind of things that she's involved in. And the also the the amazing work that I really didn't know that much about um, that the World Bank's in, involved with. So Samia, it's Fantastic to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Paul. I'm delighted to be with you. Great. So so one of the things when I was doing a little bit of background research into you is I realized that uh, you grew up in, in Lebanon. And I, and I was uh, wondering what it was that motivated you to join uh, originally the International Finance Corporation, essentially the World Bank. Um, what, 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 what made you want to make that move and how did that happen? Sure. That's such a good question, Paul. Thanks for asking. I grew up, as you said, in Beirut, Lebanon, and I had a very happy childhood until my teenager years uh, where we had a civil war. And uh, most kids in my class, including myself, were only dreaming of of leaving the war-torn country, which we did to study. So I moved to the U.S. and I uh, completed engineering and computer science studies. At that time, in the mid-80s, there was a dire lack of skilled high-tech workers. So I was very lucky to find jobs and get a green card and ultimately the passport and ended up working at the World Bank. My dream had always been to contribute to development 
And perhaps growing and witnessing war made me more realize how peace and stability are really important for, for humanity and for development. So I was lucky to uh, be able to join the World Bank on a short-term consultancy basis for a few years, grew in the ranks, got to uh, travel a lot in Africa, in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East. And uh, I find myself right now, uh, fast forward 20 years later, with a double hat. One hat is that of uh, global lead on knowledge, really producing, curating, and disseminating all we have acquired on digital development. And the second hat is really project management. I have a few projects around the world where the World Bank is helping governments invest in information communication technology to reform public sector, uh, to create innovation or tech hubs, to create high-tech skills, and I manage a few of these projects. So that, in a nutshell, is an end, a quick answer to your question, Paul. Well, that's 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 fascinating, and it it's 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 such an interesting thing to look at um, how somebody's background and experience affects what they what they do. And um, just to, just to kind of give uh, myself a, a, an understanding. So, what would be an example of of the type of projects that you you lead? I'll tell you uh, about a project I'm working on right now. It's called Digital Burkina. So Burkina Faso is a small landlocked country in West Africa, and it's, it's quite poor. Its government decided that they wanted to leapfrog, and you cannot leapfrog today without adoption of technology in, in business and in private sector processes, daily processes. So they've contacted the World Bank, and we've been for the last two years uh, involved in designing a project together for which the country of Burkina has now investment. The project is called eBurkina, Digital Burkina. And through that project, we're helping government acquire a shared platform, a shared platform for cloud computing. You wouldn't believe it, it is possible, but it is, so that the government agencies all share the same email the same uh, online documentation system, content management, websites, databases, and uh, also creating a sort of GIS, a geographical information system, where the water points, uh, agriculture, and other geographic um, data can be visualized to, to really help the rural world, the farmers, uh, the herders, people really living from agriculture, that is 80% of the country, have access quicker and faster to the latest information, whether that is weather information, whether it's price for the farmer's produce, uh, whether it's accidents so that they know which road to take to get to their point of sale for their products so there is no waste. So we're seeing amazing uses of technology, even in the poorest countries, now that most of the people have access to a cell phone. So we see that amazing leapfrog happening and the farmers in poor countries like Burkina Faso able to increase their livelihood because of their access to information through technology and mobile phones. Wow. And and 
how poor is Burkina Faso in sort of in the world? I think there's about 193, 195 countries in the world. I'm just trying to get a kind of picture of of life there. It ranks in the lowest 10 in terms mm-hmm. of uh, average GDP. It's it's a very poor country, mostly agricultural. And the fact it's landlocked does not help. Typically, landlocked countries, and, and there are many, many in the world, suffer from lack of connectivity, mm. both from, you know, a coastline, ocean, sea, and also because a lot of infrastructure is needed, whether it's transport, railway, or telecom, to better connect this, this landlocked country. So Burkina mm. suffers excessively more than countries around it, let's say Côte d'Ivoire, which has access to the whole Atlantic and 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 so how does one of the poorest countries in the world come up with this this idea of becoming if you like a a digital burkina uh, an e-burkina is that an idea that came from them or is it an idea that the world bank suggested how did that process happen that is such a good question and I think if, if we want to focus a little bit on Africa, which is really where I've been working in the last um, seven years, you see a lot of countries looking at their neighboring and neighboring countries and learning. And for me, the, the big groundbreaker in leapfrogging was, was Rwanda. And I was lucky enough to be associated with Rwanda 10 years after the genocide, so around 2007, where the government of Rwanda at the highest level, so that answers a bit your question, Paul, it's all about leadership. At that time, President Paul Kagame uh, had looked at factors and drivers for leapfrogging and identified ICTs as one of these. So, for instance, Rwanda from 2000 until today have had five-year strategies on how to use digital for better growth. So in 2007, the government requested an e-Rwanda project. And, uh, and again, I was lucky enough to be associated with that project. The project took uh, six years to, um, to end. And through that project, we helped connect government agencies. We provided a lot of training and, and skills for youth, but also public servants. And we helped government digitize as much as possible of its information then on paper and provide it online to maximize access to, to information. And then you can see a few years later, again, at very high level, strong leadership behind uh, Rwanda reforming very fast. It was, in fact, ranked one of the fastest reformers by the doing business folks, uh, another group at the World Bank who ranks countries by their uh, ability to reform and simplify for foreign direct investment or for local business. So Rwanda was uh, three times ranked in the last 10 years one of the fastest reformers for doing business because they digitized creating a business. You can create a business online now in Rwanda. You can uh, obtain a lot of information online. You can pay online. That whole of providing access to information, uh, providing access to transactions, and being able to secure end-to-end a transaction for a business uh, is now available in Rwanda. And to, to close the loop on your question, I think you need a big ecosystem, 
But the most important factor that I've observed in Rwanda, in Burkina, in other countries where I worked, like Vietnam and, and others, very strong leadership, because these projects combine together public sector reform, which is a painful process, because change is hard, especially with well-established government bureaucracies, and adoption of technology, which is new, which requires new skills, which typically is better adapted and adopted to a youth population, not typically your uh, your bureaucracy, which is typically civil servants, um, you know, 40 and above. So um, that type of combination requires a lot of leadership and constant communication. And that's the two main factors that I found key to success. Yeah, and, and this subject of demographics is, is so interesting. Would you say that that part of the success that, that you've already seen in Rwanda, you also mentioned Vietnam and, and now Burkina, is down to a, a, the age of the population and and a younger population coming through? You're, you're absolutely right, Paul. And you, you find countries that have empowered their youth especially where governments have sort of partnership with youth groups where they embed young digital fellows, as, as many call it, within government agencies, you find these reaching much more successfully that, that change and that transition from bureaucracies that are paper-based to uh, agile, uh, you know, list, uh, uh, government agencies that are in tune and listening with citizens. And, and frankly, governments have no choice. Because today, in the age of social media, at a time where uh, Facebook has more than 2 billion users, the youth, especially the educated urban youth in all countries in the world, with no exception, they got used to fast service, fast response, access to information. And so when they're dealing with kind of backward, paper-based, very slow bureaucracy, these youth get very irritated. And as we all know, you know, this can create unrest, discontent, and, and this is something governments want to avoid. So having the youth on your side and helping modernize governments from within is a, is a key factor of success as well. Mm. No, it's, it, it's really uh, fascinating because, you know, we've both, I'm sure, been watching the news about Zimbabwe. And, you know, we don't know when the podcast get, gets launched, what the situation in Zimbabwe will be. But at the moment, what struck me was was a couple of things. One is the power of, of you know, what you call, um, um, you know, state fragility or state strength. And, and I know the World Bank tracks these things, but it, it struck me that the, the governance in Zimbabwe um, looked pretty robust. And, and the other factor that, that seemed to be behind what so far has been a, you know, a peaceful transition of power there is, is the influence of, of younger people in the, in the country. And I really get a sense that there's a, uh, a very kind of positive dynamic happening. And, and I've heard similar stories to the ones you've mentioned about Nigeria and Kenya. I was talking to somebody over at Citibank and they were saying that they've been over um, working with entrepreneurs in Kenya. And they said, you can't believe the level of entrepreneurial dynamism. It's, you know, it, it's sort of equivalent to any, you know, going to New York or, or London or Berlin. And, there's a kind of shifting sands of, of, of through that I see happening. 
You're absolutely right, Paul. In fact, um, you you talk about social media, and uh, we've just issued and published our our last World Development Report, and the topic of it is digital dividends. This is the first time one of these annual reports is really focusing on digital, and the findings are astounding. I I recommend it as a read. It's it's a public good. We actually have right now a, a MOOC, a massive open online course on the topic, and social media is identified as one of the biggest enablers, starting, like you you said, with the social movements. We've seen that in Zimbabwe, Nigeria. Uh, We've seen a lot of that during the Arab Spring in Tunisia and Egypt, and we're seeing a lot of that social media, again, used for positive, really positive um, action, if you will, towards innovation. Kenya is one of the best examples I can cite. You mentioned Nigeria as well. I'm more familiar with Kenya. We've had a a large investment in Kenya, almost $200 million project. It was called the Kenya Transparency and Information Communication Project. Of this whole project, there was a small component relative to the size, $5 million, related to open data, innovation, and tech hub. And you'd be surprised and and amazed, actually, by what these 5 million could do over the life cycle of the project. So efficient in that sense of uh, a little bit of investment for entrepreneurs through these tech hubs, M-Labs, I-Hubs. These were all uh, financed by World Bank and partners in in, in Nairobi, creating amazing applications, some of them used until now, uh, some of them used for uh, monitoring the elections, like Ushahidi, others to, uh, for fashion, uh, others for e-commerce, but really creating new sources of growth that nobody would have envisaged 10 years later. So new sources of growth, new jobs, and a really positive vibe around technology, entrepreneurship, which is a message young people need to hear because traditionally youth in these countries uh, always think of employment under government as the ultimate career choice. And we're seeing that change and shift as many of these young, talented people start their own company and become digital entrepreneurs. Mm. Yeah, and I, I had um, uh, David Messer from um, NASA on one of the podcasts, and, and he told a fascinating story just about, uh, it sort of relates to, the you know the massive open online course your moot that you're running and what, how do people get educated and he said increasingly where the younger people who are in NASA you know if they want to learn something uh, the the traditional way is somebody senior would say well I'll take you through it and he said people say to him you know well with all respect David I don't really you know need that because I'll just go on to YouTube and um, actually there's a there's a sense of what you need to know already being out there and you just need to be able to tap into it. And I think what you're, what you're talking about, and in a way it feels to me from some of the collection of stories that I've been hearing um, and you're just adding to my Africa stories um, is that there's something to do with the fact that people who have not been connected are getting connected with a real appetite for change that you can then um, really access so much more knowledge than, you know, uh, was the case when certainly people in the developed world originally got online. 
you know, you're, you're almost plugging into a much more sophisticated and ri- richer digital global brain. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking for somebody on the, uh, you know, for somebody in a um, one of the uh, villages in Burkina, how is the work that you're starting there? Could you just give me an example of how that's actually positively uh, helping their life? Or, or is that still to be realized? No, no, this is, we're already seeing early signs, um, Paul. And uh, I, I really like how you close the loop with, um, with the, the other stories you've heard. We're seeing lots of common trends for these isolated farmers who went from not having any information on the price, say, of their bananas or tomatoes to all of a sudden being able to interrogate different marketplaces. And this is in Burkina, in Ghana, in Kenya, in Rwanda, through different applications, what we call mobile-based marketplace information system. So this farmer can, after some training, of course, let, let me just introduce the mm. notion of, and we didn't talk about that, so let me just take a quick parenthesis, that uh, it sounds very obvious to you and I, and to, like I said, the educated urban youth. But the moment you go to the rural areas and you go to uh, areas where you have a lot of illiteracy and, and these people have phones now and sometimes they, they don't eat for a day because they'd rather recharge the phone to have more minutes. I mean, you see amazing wow. sacrifices mm. farmers do to keep the connectivity just to show how valuable it is to them. So, so when, when you want to help that farmer to access an online information system, you got to provide some training. What is the application to use? How do you send an SMS? Sometimes for the old phones, the non-smartphone, what, they call, what we used to call the feature phone, uh, you have to enter a short code. So all that needs some training, nothing huge, a few hours, they get it. So now that farmer has access to the price of, uh, let's say, bananas in five or six different markets. Mm. He or she knows the demand. He has the supply, of course. They get the prices for wholesale or retail. So they can make an educated choice where they will carry the merchandise. They will have to either use their truck if they have one or rent one. They'll have to pay fuel. But all that will be done in the most optimal way. They will not waste money going to markets that do not need their product. They will not waste time, fuel, energy, Mm. and their quality of life, right? Their own happiness at the end of the day, plus the extra money they were able to earn, having made the better choice, is already affecting their life. And, And we hope to have more and more of these stories compound with digital health, where mothers and fathers... Uh, know where to go to get help for their kid who has diarrhea. An infant doesn't have to suffer or, God forbid, die because of uh, a simple disease that has known solutions. We are seeing a lot of this progress happen, you know, in the confines of the world. With, with the challenges, as I said, of training, need more training, and the government has a big role to play, as well as the private sector, We see a lot of phone operators stepping to the challenge and doing a lot of training. And the the other point, which is also in addition to the training, the local content. And you and I, Paul, often don't think about that, but um, sometimes websites in English aren't enough 
to provide the right information for somebody who needs that in, in Hindu or Swahili, for instance. So investing more in local content is still needed at, at a massive scale. Mm. And I, I suppose what's coming into my mind is is what the connection is between state strength, state governance and state fragility and what you're talking about in terms of digital connection, um, being able to use the digital services for your own uh, well-being. And do you see a connection between the ability for people to connect and therefore have a better a more viable life themselves and the and the stability of those of those countries yes yes you're absolutely right and actually this is a topic that is of of big priority to the world bank and if you allow me i'll just uh, for two minutes talk a little bit about what my group is doing um sure. a small group very small group we're the ict group we're we're under a global practice called the Transport and ICT Global Practice, one practice among 12 others at the World Bank. The others are really focusing on trade or education, health, poverty, etc. So we are grouped by theme, if you will. And we are seeing a lot of interest, especially in the last five years, from governments in, in the technology sector. And that was a sector that I think for a long time was kind of ignored because frankly, public sector in, in, in these countries, with a few exceptions, didn't know exactly what to do with it. But now everything is really um, linked to being connected. So we're seeing a lot of investment from governments to connect people in rural areas. So governments are putting money in public-private partnership arrangements with private operators to encourage private operators to, to go to the end, to the rural area to allow for connectivity. And government is thinking more and more of public good type content, like online education. You know, how can you uh, help online education in a country like Egypt, where you need to build every year thousands of schools to accommodate for, uh, you know, the new youth coming into the school system. So do you spend money and, and resources building more schools, or do you mix that with providing a lot more online content and telecom infrastructure. So for many of the to-be school kids, they can access the content from home and learn at their own pace. So we're seeing a lot of these types of investments, and governments are very conscious about the fact that um, this is needed for stability, uh, for, for jobs, which is the first you know, which is one of the first uh, areas of, of concern for government. All these new kids coming on the job market, they need jobs. More and more jobs are found online or are online. You could, you could today, with the online job platforms around the world, be based in Nigeria and provide work for an entrepreneur based in India, in the U.S., or in Canada. So um, we see a lot of interest and appetite for government with a little bit of caution and fear as um, more and more alarming news are coming out around cybersecurity crime, hacks, etc. So, so we are seeing that dual approach of encouraging uh, the digital economy, encouraging applications like digital health, digital education, mobile banking, which is an amazing application that spreads all through the world 
and has tremendously helped uh, small and medium-sized um, enterprises as well as individual entrepreneurs, but we're also seeing a rise in cybercrime and, and the role of governments to mitigate, to educate, and, and to, to provide for uh, cybercrime legislation when needed is key. Mm. And and did how I mean is this caused is this been a sort of universal agreed direction for the World Bank to take uh, a significant role in digital innovation digital transformation or has there been a a, a sort of uh, cultural challenge also for the organisation itself because I'm not sure how many years ago it would be but you know, the World Bank's uh, role was was not a digital role because the digital world was not as developed as it is today. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, how that uh, change has happened within the bank. Paul, that's an excellent question. And um, going back in time, uh, you're absolutely right. It was kind of a slow journey. We took a cautious approach. We started with uh, the telecom sector where the World Bank has helped, you know, 15 years ago. 15 years ago, we started to help countries create telecom regulators and help improve and increase competition by uh, providing room for the then mobile operator entry. So we we started in that field, if you will. And uh, we've seen, as as a result, we've seen uh, drops in prices and uh, widespread adoption of, of mobile. And it's not only the World Bank, of course, the whole world was investing in this. But I think this is where we started to see a significant impact for many of the investments made, both at the public and private sector. I remember when I was at IFC, the investments in then nascent and new operators were small compared to today. A million here, two or three million there, with very strict exit uh, rules. And then you could see within five to six years that uh, the, the million uh, in equity had multiplied by 10, by 20-fold because of the value of, of these new and young operators kept growing because of demand. So I, I have to say that nobody predicted that huge demand, including the World Bank. Now, once that demand was there, and we're talking more around 2010, so around seven years ago, I have to say that the World Bank leadership, especially with our current president, President Jim Kim, uh, who's a scientist himself, the interest started to increase. And uh, an application of technology, especially with the new applications related to climate change, disaster risk management, uh, this started to become very clear. And slowly but surely, the demand to invest for governments as a whole in shared platforms so that not every ministry had to create a data center and, and waste a lot of money, by the way. Uh, um, and we've seen a lot of um, technological waste uh, happen because our client governments didn't have, you know, an internal strategy to share and mutualize services. So every, every ministry did his own or her own thing. And uh, we've seen a few, sadly, failures. Um, but we learn from these. So we are seeing in the last three, four years, uh, also fueled by this report, uh, the WDR 16 on digital dividends, which highlighted a few good practices. 
we are seeing a lot of interest from governments to create a CIO office, to create digital government acts to enable that type of legislation, and to create a sort of office for shared services. Uh, typically, it's, it's, uh, it used to be under ministries of ICTs. We're seeing more and more of these under ministries of finance or even under prime ministry's office. And, and these are really looking at budgeting and rolling out technology within their ministries, coupled with modernization and, and simplification. And I think these efforts will last decades because, as you and I know, it, it's hard, like we said, to quickly change bureaucracies. But there's a lot of work that, that will be done, that can be done. And we are seeing countries learn from one another at a really fast pace. And it's, it's, I mean, what the, the other thought that's coming into my mind when you talk about governments and, if you like, digitizing government is, is that a, quite a number of the countries you're talking about almost to me sound like sort of n- kind of country level startups. So they, they come unencumbered with the, the baggage that, you know, the European countries and have, etc. you know, where that they're they're kind of free from some of the limitations and and habits and patterns, and I I wonder whether you know the the so-called developed world is is kind of lagging bef- behind at a sort of national level, just in terms of its its digital ambitions, its digital. I mean, there are stories, there are exceptions. You've got Singapore, Estonia, uh, Finland, but a lot of it seems quite prosaic compared with some of the stories that you're, you're talking about? You're right, Paul. And um, these are stories that are in not any book. And we are seeing, you mentioned exactly the right country. For instance, Estonia, Singapore, Finland. Uh, we get a lot of requests from our clients to hear from them. I was recently in, in Kigali, and we had uh, a representative from Estonia talk about exactly what you mentioned, their interoperability framework, how they have managed to build together that roadmap, X-Road as they call it, to have all these different databases talk together. And it's, it's much more difficult to do that when you have legacy systems than, let's say, when you're starting from a green field and you can build from scratch. We, we all know that, right? We are seeing also a lot of interest in um, what we call the digital enablers, and I'll give you an example. Everybody's now looking at India, for instance, for its uh, digital ID realization of Aadhaar, which is the biometric registration database for all the residents of India. Right, and is is that something that Indian citizens get at birth? So this is something that they, they from now on get at birth, but they had to register for it. Mm. And it was it was the biggest registration effort ever made that I know of. You know, 1.2 billion people wow. registered within seven years. It's like a million. Sometimes we heard it's like a million a day, which is, <laughs> you know, within within three months, you can register a whole continent with with that speed and efficiency and, and we hope accuracy. Now, nothing is perfect, of course, but with that, with that ID, um, a lot of the population of India can access services they were not having access to nor entitled to. And they have uh, a legal ID, which is, uh, which is something, unfortunately, um, that is not ubiquitous in the rest of the world. To give you an example, 
um, of a greenfield country, let's say Guinea, Guinea-Conakry. I just came back from there. It's what you call a totally greenfield country when it comes to um, management information systems for the government. There is very little out there. Where, whereabouts is it? Because I, I, I should know the answer to this, but I don't. No, not at all. It's, it's on the Atlantic coast of West Africa, and uh, it's, it's, it's close to Côte d'Ivoire, and it's, right. uh, it's, it's, it's a country of uh, around uh, 12 million people, but more than 40% of these people do not have an ID. They, they are, they're on no paper. Mm. They are nowhere. They are no one, if you will. They're nobody. And how to get a, let's say, how to get a cell phone when you cannot have an ID to show you are who you claim to be, how to register your kid for primary school um, without an ID is practically impossible. So we're, we're trying to help the government there to um, register, register all its residents in a, a digital ID scheme, which will later on, hopefully immediately actually, in fact, in parallel, help them access to services like financial inclusion, education, even social protection, as governments give a lot of cash, they have a lot of cash transfer programs that sometimes don't go to the, to the beneficiary they're targeting. Sometimes there's a lot of waste and leakage. And we think using the India example and examples from many other countries like Peru, like Thailand, that when you properly identify people for development, for social services, you can be much more effective with public money especially for uh, these social cash transfer programs. You must be amazed uh, at the work that you now find yourself doing, given, you know, what sort of propelled you to try and get into the, uh, A, to leave the country that you loved but found difficult to be in, and the change that you wanted to bring into the world. You're absolutely right, Paul. And the great news now is that, you know, There are no borders, and with technology, look at you and I, we're just communicating seamlessly, so distance is no longer. I see a lot of amazing work that technology has allowed us to do, you know, at scale. I really believe that when technology is properly used and people properly train on it, um, the sky is the limit. It actually changes how we see development and It helps us create new content constantly. And I'm not the only one. We're like around 50 people in my team, and we're all true believers. I'd love you to come visit us one day. <laughs> mm. I'd love to do that. And um, I know that we're just coming up to the uh, to, to the end, but, it, you know, um, the thing that I sort of wrote down was, was a triangle of, of youth, uh, digital, and economy equals progress and and that that kind of bringing that constellation together as a kind of counterpoint to you know some of the instability that we see in so many countries and Samia you know I just really want to thank you so much for for coming on the podcast today and and sharing such fascinating stories and you've left me with this exotic round the world tour through Vietnam Peru thailand burkina which i'd love to come to and um uh thank you so much for for coming on the podcast today it's been wonderful samia thank you so much paul it's been a pleasure being with you i look forward to have you visit with me burkina digital workplace impact is produced by the digital workplace group 
a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. If you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com and thank you for listening.